Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, Pedagogy Geeks. I'm Ryan Tusing. And I'm Arielle Weiss. I'm a dancer and Alexander Technique teacher living here in Philadelphia. And I'm a pianist and piano teacher living here in Virginia. We invite you to join us in exploring the hows and the whys behind what we teach musicians so that we can help promote the integration of wellness with musicianship. We welcome your questions and hope to inspire your curiosity. We also hope to support and encourage re-examining and rediscovering and also bringing embodiment and creativity into our teaching. Now, today's episode is all about how can we set our students up for success, especially in first lessons. Because we're talking about setting students up for success, I think it's really important that we define what we mean by success in this context. Of course, you know, given the fact that we're teaching many different students, success may mean different things for each of them. So by taking the time to really consider that as we think about what success is, we're, we're apt to come up with a much better definition. So Ariel, what would you say success means to you in this context? Well, Brian, I'm super glad you right away went to context, right? About what is success mean to the student that walks in our door. So that to me is the key to success is to take the time to orient myself to what the student wants, because as they're in control of driving what their lessons are about and what does it mean to them to be successful, they're gonna be much more invested so my job is to tailor fit to what my students want. How about for you, Ryan? Well, I couldn't say it better than that. I think <laughs> that that's really sums it up for me too. I believe that just really being aware of the student in front of us, really listening to them, especially you know in a first lesson, really listening to really get a sense of what it is they're seeking and you know, how that fits with what we can offer them and really developing a plan of study that's going to help them maximize their success toward that goal, you know. So I guess success really is, you know, helping the student toward their goal in the best way that we know how. Mm -hmm. That being said, I do have some guidelines for myself. So in addition to finding out what my student is interested in accomplishing and why they've come to me, um, I would say I have this kind of guiding principle that I came up with years and years ago when I first started teaching and was a little overwhelmed, is that each lesson I want to have one salient idea for the student to take home with them. Because sometimes I get excited and I can put lots out on the table. The idea for me is that one clear idea per lesson is a guiding principle that's helped me a lot as a teacher. And alongside that as a partner idea, I would say that that idea has to be able to be articulated you know, somehow, usually in words, so that it's repeatable for the student, but that also in each lesson, uh, uh, indicator of success for me is clearly an experience, right? That they have a clear experience of a change that they wanna go home and investigate, right? So that I'm giving them the tools, both that they have a new experience, number one, 
a clear idea that they can articulate so they can repeat it. And then I would add on, if I can, even dovetail onto my own idea, some notion of the process that's going to help them investigate that, right? Because I'm an Alexander teacher, that doesn't just mean go home and practice music. It might mean pay attention to how you wash your dishes. You know, it could be lots of different things, but I want to kind of help map out to set my student up for success. So a clear experience during the lesson, articulating the idea so they can repeat it and then actually showing them how they can implement. Yeah, that was a lot. Something to, <laughs> to that's, chime in there. That's wonderful. <laughs> and I think you articulated that very well. I would say one thing that's a bit different, you know, from what I do, you know, in music lessons, it's the very somewhat from some of my colleagues is I have been very inspired by both the Taubman approach and by the Alexander technique. And what what has really uh, impacted my teaching in a major way is I want to send the student out having had that experience of a change and letting them have an you know, having experienced that, be able to understand, okay, what did we do? And the process of how we're, how you mentioned, you know, I think that, and, you know, in keeping that within an appropriate scope so that it's actually manageable and not overwhelming. And I would say for me, that really has a lot to do with helping the student to be successful and to feel successful in the lesson, because you're not, I'm not sending them out to, oh, here's some ideas, you know, just piece together these abstract things. And maybe if you get lucky, you, you know, maybe next week something will be different. I just, I, I feel like that's a little bit like teaching as a dartboard <laughs> in the sense that, you know, we're just kind of throwing things and then maybe something will stick. And I think as a practice tool for students, that doesn't really set them up very well. And so for me, giving them something that they've already been able to achieve a certain amount of in the lesson actually gives them something you know that inspires them to practice and gives them mm. something to aim toward and i think that's mm. very important boy the more we talk about success the more i want to talk about it because yes. i feel like we're getting <laughs> deeper and deeper into it it's such a juicy topic and so you're talking about something that came up in class a couple of weeks ago um, and my student talked, uh, used the words competence and confidence. And I went, oh, wow, that's great. Because they pair really well, don't they? So this idea that if I, if I, frankly, if I go too fast and give my student too much and I overwhelm them, which I can sometimes do being a human being on this planet, uh, then they're not necessarily going to feel competent with the material, with the ideas that I gave them. If it's too far off what I call their radar screen, like they know something happened, but they can't quite articulate it yet, right? So that competence, if I repeat something enough in a lesson that they're pretty clear on what's going on, that's gonna build the confidence. But I wanna chime in one more time because there's another key ingredient for me. And it's probably the most important one. It just took me a while to get down to those layers, which is curiosity. So if my student leaves my door curious to explore more, that's probably the most important thing. So the competence and confidence is important, but if it's not paired with curiosity, 
they're going to nail it down into what they think they know. And that's not going to be as successful for how I want to teach. And so curiosity led, right? And some amount of confidence that comes from competence, which might just be, I learned to ask questions. Wow, that was one question, and we had quite a lot to say, didn't we? <laughs> we did indeed. <laughs> well, moving along to our next question, Ryan, I wanted to ask you, because you know a lot of people might walk through our doors, and frankly, we're probably better suited to teach some students rather than others. And I'm wondering, what for you makes a good fit for you with a pupil? What are you looking for? How do you present yourself? I would say the biggest thing that I really look for is, is something that anyone can have, and that's really genuine interest in the subject and, and that sense of curiosity, or at least a willingness to cultivate that sense of curiosity. And I would say that, you know, sometimes with piano lessons, it's not uncommon, you know, especially with very young students for parents to to come dragging these children into lessons and they come into my studio and I'm like, OK, so I listen, I ask questions and sometimes it becomes very apparent that the child is there, you know, and has been, you know, forced into this situation and they have no more interest in playing the piano than I do in, you know, some, something very bizarre. So I would say, really, for me, just that sense of interest is often really enough. And I think, you know, there's other things that, you know, can come into play as we're thinking about this, um, you know, such as how well certain personalities go together, how well people tend to communicate, learning styles and all of that. But I would say at the bottom of the line, it's really about that level of interest and curiosity, because I really think in most situations, if that's there, you know, as both teacher and student working together in a collaborative way, you can overcome many of those other, you know, things that might not mm. already be working as well together. What about for oh. you, Ariel? Well, you gave me the perfect segue. Thank you, Ryan. So for me too, curiosity, first and foremost, absolutely. And then you were just talking about this key ingredient for me about collaboration. Teaching is collaboration. And so for me, a good fit with a student is not a compliant student, right? There's a lot of training in our educational systems to be compliant and just to kind of, uh-huh, 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 and try to replicate and get an A on a test, you know? And, and so I use a lot of humor. I'm a cheesy kind of gal and I'm trying to kind of rattle us out of that well-worn path. And so I'm looking for a student that's willing to tell me when they don't understand what something I've said or they're not understanding what I'm trying to demonstrate. And so what I'm looking for is collaboration, curiosity and collaboration. And sometimes the longer I teach, the more I understand I have to invite that right from the get-go in a first lesson. My first lessons have changed a great deal over my decades of teaching. And I find that that's one thing I really wanna do in a first lesson is set that scene. Um, and Ryan, you know my company policy and it's cheesy, but I came up with it exactly in the spirit, which is I tell my students first lesson, please don't believe me. I don't want you believing me. I want you not disregarding me, this you've walked through my door and I take that responsibility pretty seriously, 
But if you take it in and really bring your curiosity and say, how does that work? And is that how it's working? And can I notice what's going on? Because if you follow the process, what Mr. Alexander called the means whereby, then you're actually learning something. And that's what you and I have in common, right? We are teachers with a passion for pedagogy. So that's for me a good fit in a student. But that can be, of course, all different kinds of learners. And actually the more the merrier because we always learn more from those students we don't get right away, don't we? <laughs> oh, we do indeed. I Yes, <laughs> I'd have to agree with that. And I think to your point, this sense of just making it very clear from the beginning, yes, I have something to offer, I'm a teacher, but I don't know everything. And you have really good questions and maybe my the answers that I have are gonna really work well for you. Or maybe, maybe they're not gonna be the best fit. And you know, if, if not, that's okay. We'll work together to see what we can figure out that might work better for you. So I think for us as teachers, setting that up in a first lesson, that can be very paradigm shifting for many students. As you mentioned, many educational situations have the sense that, you know, you come in, you you take the test, you comply, you get ready for the test, you check the right boxes, you get a good grade. And I think this, it, it already, it, it's sort of a surprising thing for many students, I think, when they come in and it's like, oh, what questions do you have? And, you know, you're really addressing it to their specific needs and interests. So. Yeah, definitely a good thing. So transitioning a little bit, I would say for you, what is a first lesson really about? You know, what are your priorities? What are your aims? What are your outcomes? Like, are you are you really interested in a specific um, tangible like end or goal at the end of the in a first lesson that they, you know, reach something specific? Or is it really about, you know, the process and helping them towards something maybe not so specific at first? Well, I think for me, it's a little bit of a combination because if someone comes to me and they have a wish, a desire, it might be that something hurts, right? It might be they wanna get better at something. I feel like if I don't address that in our first lesson, I haven't really listened to them. And so I do wanna give them a little peek that what I know helps, right? I wanna, I wanna woo them a little bit, yes? I wanna show them that how we move matters and how we think drives how we move. And so I'm looking for a practical application in that first lesson. But before I do that, I have to get to know my student a little bit. And what's interesting is I actually spend more time telling a little bit about how I work. So engaging them in that, no, I really, you're not going to be rude by interrupting me with a question. Your question is always going to be the right question. And so for me, I like to set the rules of the road a little bit, uh, whether I'm teaching a private lesson or I also teach in groups, that it's super important to establish those um, like working conditions about safety and respect Right. And I mean, safety, not just like wearing a hard hat safety. I mean, a safety to not get things right away, a safety to ask questions or not understand or not even participate. Right. So all those what I'm going to call the rules of engagement are super important to me, um, as well as you came to me with with a problem to solve. And I want to at least make an inroad 
at least get you started to see that this might be of use to you. But how about for you, Ryan? What's important to you for priorities? Hmm. Really, you know, meeting the student where they are with their questions and with the interests that they express is very important to me. And I would say, you know, in my specific context with teaching music to students, I'm really interested in what music they like. I'm interested mm. in what pieces they want to learn. I'm interested in what brings them to piano? How did they get inspired to come, you know, even have their parents or, you know, they themselves have been studying and they'd like more, more help. I'm really interested in that. And I'm really interested in trying to understand their background as it relates to that and really listening to see specifically what it is that you know, with whatever piece it is that they'd like to learn or whatever mm. the case is, really, really seeing, okay, what is their interest here? And, mm. and how can I help support that from the first lesson? Because I really think that that's the, the thing that helps students to immediately, I really think that helps their curiosity to bloom. And I think it helps to show them that, hey, I'm here to support you in achieving this. And it's not just about, you know, I'm a teacher, we, we're going to check all the boxes. Mm, Ryan, that's beautiful, because you're talking about a power dynamic here, too. Because if we see ourselves as teachers with we know everything, and our job is to impart knowledge, that's not a collaboration. And so when we take the time to orient what we're doing, to what our students are interested in, that really changes the dynamic pretty profoundly. And in Alexander lessons, this is also shifting in my teaching because I'm finding that I'm encouraging my students to get a little deeper. So what do I mean by that? So a lot of times people will come to me as an Alexander teacher and I'll say, what do you wanna work on? And they'll say something like, I have terrible posture. I wanna work on my posture. So this is an interesting topic amongst Alexander teachers because uh, posture is kind of a verboten language <laughs> in Alexander technique. Uh, and I did a TED talk about posture myth busting because I thought, well, lots of people are interested in posture. So I'm going to talk about posture, but I'm going to talk about it in a way that's actually going to help you, right? Because it's not a place. But here's the funny thing. When someone says, I want to work on my posture, because I know I have forward neck, lately, I'm kind of asking them to dig a little deeper because I don't really think that's what they want. I think they've already diagnosed what they think the problem is. And if I get them to say, well, what does your forward head position prevent you from having? Or what does it set up that you don't like? Because I think that bad posture is really an indicator it might be that it's causing their neck and back to hurt, right? And so what they really want is to feel comfortable and pain-free, which is different than I wanna have good posture. Or it might be that people don't take me seriously. And when I get up uh, to present at conferences, I don't feel confident. And so I want to both feel confident and I want to be taken seriously. Well, that's a different aim than I want better posture. So. Lately, I'm asking my students to dig a little deeper, and especially this comes up with musicians, 
because they'll tell me the problem, right? They'll say, um, uh, um, trying to think of one, mm, um, uh, my shoulder, my shoulder is moving a lot when I play and I'll say, okay, what is that extra movement of your shoulder preventing from happening? <laughs> right? Because it doesn't really matter if your shoulder's moving a lot. It might, it might be distracting if you're a singer to have your shoulder going all the time. Yes. But it's probably that extra movement is distracting from the movement you want, the productive movement. So I got a little off on a tangent there, but this just getting our students to clarify their wish is in itself a whole little process, which in a first lesson can be pretty significant. Oh, I'd agree. And I, I think you, you already like went into our next question so beautifully, which is really this idea of customizing lessons mm. for a student and thinking about how we do that. And I think you set it up very well in thinking about what is actually a cause of something and what is the symptom what's what's at the root of something and what what is this what is this request that you're bringing or this observation that you're bringing what is it actually really about and i think whenever we're able to orient students toward what they're actually wanting what their what their what their aim is the whole reason that they're spending their time and energy and effort and you know desire on something I think we are going to be more effective in helping them because I was thinking about a book I read recently. It was by a philosopher, James K. A. Smith. The book is titled, You Are What You Love. And he basically mm. talks about in this book, this idea of, you know, you know, we can, we think we can think our way into good habits with various things. And, you know, it's not that our thinking plays no part because of course it does, but he argues that at a very fundamental level, it's what we really want, what we're really after that's going to really help us direct ourselves towards something. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, to your point that that, you know, looking at roots of things and looking at what's really behind it is really the key to customizing that for students. Mm, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that customization process uh, continues to expand in my own experience about what, like all the many ways we can customize. So there's kind of the obvious, like learning what kind of learner is in front of us, right? Is it visual information that really connects for them? As an Alexander teacher, we use our hands. So we use tactile, but also certainly want to promote proprioception. We want to wake up our students' kinesthetic sense. And that can be pretty mysterious to a lot of people. And so that's a large part of uh, my job as a teacher is to get you like not afraid to just like turn on your proprioception and, and not be surprised that it's not so clear to you and to try to help inspire you not to give up and to keep exercising. It's like a muscle. You want to like get it a little, a little more tuned up and warmed up and strong by using your proprioception. Um, so I often will use more than one source of information. So I'll use my skeleton for visual information. I'll get my students moving and ask them to pay attention to their own proprioception. I'll get them to touch things, right? 
um, listen to their own footsteps, right? Working with musicians all these years has certainly influenced me. I listen so much more than I used to, to changes in voice, changes in breathing, changes in footsteps. And certainly if I'm working with a musician, listening to the music, even though I don't have a trained ear, I'm a human being with ears and I hear differences. And so allowing and suggesting and promoting that my students use all their sensory mechanism is certainly an important part of the work that I do. How, how do you think you customize things differently for your students, Ryan? I'm very interested in that multidimensional approach that you spoke about, because I think whenever we're trying to teach a concept or help a student, you know, in a particular direction, I think we're often most successful when we do that. And we do it from multiple angles. Because I think even if a particular student seems to have a proclivity toward learning in a certain way, say they're very visual, I often find though, when I bring in really oral things or movement, kinesthetic things, proprioception, those sorts of things, you know, maybe they got it, you know, in part with the visual way that I was showing it to them. But by the time we've explored it from other angles, I would say that I've never had an, an experience with a student where they haven't had it more deeply and it mm. hasn't become more theirs. So I would say that's Beautiful. the biggest thing that I'm, that I'm thinking about, you know, with, and you know, that doesn't apply just to first lessons, but I think that's one of the things that speaking of music teaching, I think there's often a very much a strong bias toward often, especially in classical music, young students come in, you're teaching them from the page there. It's, it becomes almost very mechanical sometimes and certainly not always, but I very much have come to notice that like sometimes the best thing I can do, especially with young students or even students that aren't so young, taking some of those layers of like the page, because that can become a barrier, taking those things away and helping them to actually experience, you know, playing the instrument, experiencing the music by singing it, by, mm. you know, moving to it. You know, I mean, you're, you have a dance background. You understand this, this probably even better than I do. But I think that sense of bringing it together and taking away things that might distract or might distract at first and then could be helpful. I think really thinking about how we sequence that and how we layer it for students makes a big difference. Yes, and you're speaking about something super important that I think should be a whole nother episode. We should write this one down. But this idea of unifying our senses because there's such a strong bias to listen and to isolate. And there's such a strong bias to look and isolate. And really our senses work much better in an orchestrated fashion, not a soloist. But I think that should be another episode. And I do wanna say there's one more way that um, there's many more than one more way, but another way that I'm thinking a lot about lately about customizing, especially that first lesson is how much information is enough, right? So because certainly we don't all have the same kind of bandwidth and we don't all have the same uh, preferences for speed. <laughs> yes. And so I can get kind of excited. I love what I do and I can sometimes go a little too fast. <laughs> I can rush ahead. Yes. And I can get, you know, super excited and want to put a lot on the table. 
And so an important area that I'm currently really paying attention to in myself is my own biases, right? And really trying to meet my student. What's the right pace here? What's the right amount of content for this lesson? So that's something I'm trying to pay. I'm not trying, I'm paying more attention to in lessons, especially those first lessons. Important thing to find out, I think. I agree. So as we continue, do you have any particularly memorable first lesson experiences? It could be a lesson that you had yourself or a lesson you've taught. Any any that stand out for you? Hmm. Well, I, th I think I like to tell this story a lot because it, it points a lot both um, to the process of teaching and how humbling it can be. So I remember I taught a lesson to a cellist once and this cellist came in for a first lesson and what he wanted was he said his back was hurting quite a bit. And when I looked at this cellist, this cellist was in a pretty big slump and they were sitting on the back of their sit bones and their head weight was forward. And I said, oh, I can understand. I hear you. I see you. And so one lesson I taught this cellist a little bit about the foundation of their sit bones, a little tiny bit about head balance. And this cellist did not come back for another lesson. And I thought, oh, I thought that was such a nice change. I was a little surprised this cellist didn't come back for a second lesson. And I had some feelings about, oh, I, maybe I didn't do such a good job. <laughs> so long story short, I was backstage at a concert and saw this young cellist backstage. And so I said, hi, how are you? And the cellist with great vigor and excitement said, I'm great. My back doesn't hurt anymore. <laughs> and so I thought, wow. Now I'm not sitting here telling you that I know it was my lesson that fixed this young cellist's back pain. I don't know that for sure. But what was funny about that moment for me, Ryan, was I had assumed I had failed as a teacher. I went right there and I'm gonna just be loud and proud about being a human being and revealing that that was what I assumed, yes. And when I ran into that cellist, I thought, well, well maybe that cellist got what they wanted and they didn't come back because they were able to solve the problem they wanted to solve. It's a possibility. And so it humbles me that I don't always know what a student takes away from a first lesson. I don't really know how much sank in. <laughs> and so um, I've learned to get more comfortable in my humility about that. How about for you? Do you have a first lesson story for us? I do. I will never forget my first lesson with my current piano teacher, Robert Durso. I had been in graduate school studying music, piano, and attended a summer workshop, learned about the Taubman approach a bit more than what I had been familiar with it already. And I contacted him, reached out about having a lesson. Well, I go and have a lesson with him. And immediately I was struck because this was not the kind of lesson that I was used to having, you know, because there's often a sense in piano lessons, especially in the classical music world, that you're supposed to go to your lesson, present a performance of your piece, and mm. then your teacher will give you criticism on this. 
Not that that format never can be helpful, but I really have come to have some concerns about it in general. But my lesson with him was not like that. My lesson with him started by asking, he asked me a lot of questions. He wanted to understand what my background was. Why was I there? What, what would I like help with? And that was amazing for me. And we really dived into specific solutions for the things that I had brought. Which to, you know, toward what we were talking about earlier about how we think about orienting a first lesson for me, having had some lessons like that from him and then from you as well, that sense of really being seen and heard and like what you're saying is being acknowledged from the beginning and the teacher is there to help you with what's difficult. That made a very big difference for me and I'm very grateful for it and I really try to bring that to all the lessons that I teach, just that sense of really being curious and really listening to students and helping them if they don't know what their concerns are, or they aren't sure what the challenge is, helping them to determine what that is, and then helping them to achieve success with what they're working with. Hmm. Well, I started talking about it a little moment ago. I kind of want to go back if that's okay. Of course. The pacing of a lesson and also the direction of a lesson. So I'm curious, Ryan, if there's things you've learned, like I'm going to call it a tell. Like what are some of the tells that tell you it's time to move on or um, or it's it's time to wind down or like what kind of signals are you looking for? from your student. Am I making sense with my question? Oh, you, you most certainly are making sense. I really try to observe the student. I watch for body language. I watch for, you know, if, if I start getting blank looks like tear in the headlights sorts of things, or, mm -hmm. or I start to notice the student freeze in any particular way, or I notice that what maybe we've added too many things and it's starting to feel too challenging for them. You know, just constantly monitoring it from the entire time, the entire duration of the lesson and really watching for like those signals that I was talking about. I really have found that to be very helpful. The other cue that I've used is when I, when students are talking you know when you know say they're because i often have them kind of explain things i often sometimes especially with my very young students i'll be like okay you you can be the teacher right now i'm going to do this how am i doing it and let me tell you there is not a five-year-old that i've met yet that is not thrilled and delighted by that prospect but it's it's really interesting because you really come to learn what their understanding of something mm. is and I mean, there's more than just that way of doing that, but really, you know, whether it's by doing it that way, whether it's by asking the student a question about what they're doing or trying to do, you can really learn a lot mm. because of the, the answer is going to tell you how they're processing it. Because I think anytime we give a student a chance to put it in their own words or to explain it to you, or you're demonstrating a couple different things and they're, they're helping you to see, oh, this was like, this was maybe better because it was like this, or, oh, this one was terrible because, you know, you didn't quite do that, you know, and five-year-olds will tell you if it's terrible, let me just tell you, <laughs> but that's, that's just a, a fun side note. So I'd say, Ariel, for you, what, what are you monitoring when you're mm. working with students? 
Well, I got to tell you, I love what you just shared and I'm stealing it because I only steal from the best and I do my own different version, but I really like that idea of asking my student to be the teacher and explain to me what I want to do. So I, I've called that walk me, talk me. So I'll ask a student to share with me like what they've been thinking about and what they've been, what they've been noticing. And I like to put that in the context of an activity. So I'll say, well, talk me through what you're thinking about as you put your shoes on or reach up for the tea or whatever it is that they're looking at or playing their guitar. Yes. So I ask them to talk me through the process of what they're thinking about. But that's a really eloquent solution. I like that, Ryan. I think I'm going <laughs> to, I think I'm going to use that. And for sure, watching the signs of their speech, I listen very carefully to use of words, language, vocabulary. Um, and certainly if they start getting kind of agitated and frustrated, um, I'm a big um, one, I call it the spaghetti school, right? Like throw it at, I'm going to throw some ideas out there and you don't have to catch them all. We kind of want to see what sticks. So I like to liberate my students from thinking they have to understand it all and get it all right. And, and just to say, if one thing sticks from today's lesson, great. Right. One thing that's, we're back to my one idea, <laughs> my one idea strategy here. Well, we have um, talked about a lot. I think it's important that we talk about follow through. So how do you encourage your students to follow up after that first lesson? Ryan, what's important to you? The first thing I'd say is I like to make sure the students have a clear sense of a process and, you know, uh, tying this in with what we were speaking about initially by setting them up to be successful at doing the thing we worked on in the lesson so that they already have some agency with that. And you know, then encouraging them to take that and continue exploring the process that we used and giving them tangible tools and ways of doing something with it and ways of exploring it and making it clear that, well, guess what? When you come back next week, you don't have to perform this for me. This doesn't have to be perfect. And you know, if something does not go well with what we worked on, please bring it back as a question. I'd be delighted to hear your feedback. So I'd say those are the main caveats that I'm you know, assuming when I answer this question. So I'd say having done all of those things, I really like to encourage the students to just revisit a few times a day, short, short bursts of things, you know, just thinking about what we're doing, you know, for, in my case, you know, if it's if we've worked on a song, oh, maybe sing the melody a little bit, get used to the tune, or, you know, when you're sitting down at the piano, how are you moving, you know, just, just encouraging them to be aware and, you know, have that unified field of attention that I learned from you and that I continue to find so helpful for myself and my students, really cultivating that and cultivating it in the sense of when they're thinking about going home and, you know, practicing or working with something or playing with it, that they're doing so not in the sense that, okay, I have my clock set for one hour. And I am going to sit here for one hour. It doesn't matter how I'm feeling. It doesn't matter how this is going. I'm just going to check off the hour. I'm very adamant to my students that I really don't encourage that idea because mm. I think I don't think it really promotes 
mindfulness. And I don't think it really helps the student really have the amount of attention they need to really, you know, mm. be able to stay with themselves to really be successful. What about you, Ariel? Well, I just want to say bravo before I tell you anything, because that's really a radical act, Ryan, that you're asking your students to pay attention to when they're ready to practice instead of being a slave to the clock. That's a radical act. That is not how most music educators are doing it. And I want to give you a little round of applause because I think it's that important. It's why I'm so honored to do this podcast with you, Ryan. So, um, yeah, I think my answers are similar that again, curiosity must be really the, the, the true theme of our discussion today. The, and sometimes I say, um, it's like a yo-yo, take it out and play with it. <laughs> my teacher used to say every once in a while when you're in the mood, right? So that I, I want to cultivate this idea of letting these ideas and experiences inform you and for me, I like to give my students, like really show them how this applies to what they do every day. So um, maybe it's paying attention when you brush your teeth or reaching for a doorknob or getting in and out of a chair, especially the musicians, may I just say, because the musicians are so myopically focused on practice and um, the tyranny, right, of practice, may I just say. Uh, that I don't want to give them something else to worry about. They have plenty to worry about. That this is something they can playfully pay attention to. And if they can understand the use of their arms on a steering wheel, on a car, on the handlebars of a bicycle, that's going to inform how they use their arms to play a piano. Yes. And so to kind of playfully show them thematically a way to pay attention in their everyday life, but it's gotta be playing. We call it playing music people. <laughs> and boy, some of us have squeezed the play right out of it in our earnestness. And even though I'm not a musician, that's certainly what was going on for me as a dancer. I was squeezing the joy out of my own movement. And when I started taking Alexander lessons, one of the things I realized was, oh, right. I remember how much I love to move through space oh, I almost forgot that. And so to kind of bring that sense of explore, exploration uh, is what's going to help my students. And sometimes encouraging them to write down questions for our next lesson too, and make sure they know that that's a welcome thing. Phew, I feel like we're coming in for a landing here. I think you're right. I guess we just have one question left, really. And that's, We've talked about what success is, you know, as we're thinking about helping our students in a first lesson. What does success mean for you as a teacher? How do you, how do you evaluate how, how teaching is gone? Well, I think it's actually fairly simple. Uh, for me, success is when a student demonstrates uh, that their curiosity can lead to a change in themselves, right? That's agency. That's, I have a choice here to change how I think and how I move and I can make a change. So when my student comes back after their first lesson and they says, oh, you know, I was noticing as I walk down the street and they notice something and they are able to implement a change, they get huge snaps from me because to me, that's the success. Don't do it for me right? Is that you have some agency here. So that's what I'm looking for. But what about for you, Ryan? 
That's the perfect answer as far as I'm concerned. So I have absolutely nothing to add. <laughs> well, this has been a blast. I'm so glad we were able to meet together and do this second episode. I do um, want to make a, a little plug here to everyone that we're looking for more topics. Um, we're pretty sure we're not going to run out of things to talk about, but we'd love to hear from you. And so uh, we thank you for joining us today and helping us think and explore about how we teach and learn. And we'd love to hear about your experiences. And we definitely want to hear about your questions about how embodiment and mindset impact your music making and your teaching. Please send us your future Pedagogy Geeks um, topics to us. We have an email. It's pedagogygeeks at gmail.com.